This is Echozoi Radio, episode 156 for April 2021, with Fred Butler on King James Only Revisited. Welcome to Echo Zoe Radio, the podcast outreach of Echo Zoe Ministries, where you'll hear about important topics affecting the church today. Our primary goal is to explore a variety of issues while remaining faithful to God and His Word. Stay with us for the next hour as your host, Andy Olson, shares his conversation with this month's guest. Here's your host, Andy Olson. I'm Andy Olson. Thanks for listening to Echo Zoe Radio. This is episode 156 for April 2021 with Fred Butler. Now, the first time I ever had Fred on the show was seven years ago in May of 2014 to discuss King James Onlyism. Since then, Fred has updated his writing on the subject and put it in a book form. He recently released Royal Deceptions, Exposing the King James Only Conspiracies Against God's Word. He returns for this episode to revisit the subject and we get into some of the particulars of the book. Show notes for this episode are available at echozoe.com slash 156. I still don't have any real updates on the social media front. I'm still not active on Twitter, and I continue to actively avoid Facebook. Uh, I also have not shifted my habits over to any other platforms yet. I'd like to say that I'll be moving into a particular site and get as active as I used to be on Twitter and whatnot, but uh, I certainly can't be making those promises with uh, quite yet. I will let everyone know when I find a solid social media home, though. Um, I do have accounts on Gab and Parlor, and I'm checking out some smaller ones as well, but uh, not quite as active as I used to be. But uh, please feel free to send me a message. I do encourage your feedback through echozoe.com slash contact. And if you're on an open platform that you like, uh, send me a note. I'd like to know about it. But with that, here's my discussion with Fred. Well, Fred, it's uh, it's been, what, like four months since I had you on? <laughs> yeah, I know. Was it December or something that we did? December our, with Andrew. With Andrew, yes, talking about your urine review. Yep. So, you know, correctly. of course, now that we've got this one, you're going to be talking uh, all this stuff we're going to talk about tonight is going to be done again in December when I have you I know. and Andrew on and, again. I know, and I'll, uh, this will be my favorite episode, I'm sure of it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. So the first time we ever talked was, uh, it was seven years ago, May okay. of, May of 2014. Now this will be the April episode. I, it, it is April, okay. but I haven't posted April episode. So I'm going to record this and try to get it done as quick as I can and put it up. But, uh, we're so at it's almost, uh, it's almost seven years, seven years, to the, to the, the same subject too. We're going to talk about King James only, but with a little bit different, a little bit of a follow-up. Okay. Um, <laughs> You wrote a book, and so we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, what's in the book. Yes. Okay. Yes, I did. So all of that material that we probably sort of talked about seven years ago, I've formatted it and I put it into a book format that I published with Amazon. So now, instead of going to my blog and having to read through articles, I've actually expanded all those blog articles and put them in a readable book or Kindle file. Readable. For you saying the blog wasn't readable? It was readable. Well, I mean, most people are looking at you having a laptop sitting on your tummy while you're laying in bed. These days it'd be a phone or an iPad. Or it's not kind of phone or an iPad, yeah. But Which yeah, that's how the, everybody's uh, reading their Kindle books now anyway, right? What's the difference? Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's true. I read I read with a laptop sitting on my tummy because <laughs> <laughs> it's a bigger screen and I can yeah. actually. But if you like me, you got you got some surface area to set that. I know, laptop yeah, yeah, I on, to right? Put, I have to put a pillow up there now, but that's good. <laughs> no, the um, yeah, I wanted to make it into a readable book and and, and a holdable, you know, the paperback. Uh-huh. And um, a lot of that had to do with the fact that something I something you a, could give grandma, right? Because she's not uh, yeah, exactly, read a and that's exactly who I had in mind originally because we had a lady who came or who actually wrote to grace to you where I work and had asked my boss 
uh, my direct manager said, hey, do you know anyone who's written on this subject of King James onlyism? I've never really heard of this before, but she had a relative, a son. Somebody gave her a book, I think was published by Jack Chick. Oh, uh, everybody's talking favorite. About their, everybody's favorite track guy. Yeah. <laughs> and she was, uh, and who's now deceased, but um. He was the book was on King James onlyism and why the King James is the only Bible that you can read and every other Bible is corrupted kind of thing. All the modern versions are corrupted. Mm-hmm. And my boss asked me, he said, I thought you wrote some articles on this or something. I'm like, I did, but they're all online. So I can send you the links. You know, I mean, I, I can print some stuff out for her to maybe look at. I mean, I, you know, mm-hmm. and so as he and I had this conversation, I just started thinking in my mind, why don't I take that material and at least put together some sort of, um, uh, I guess you could say like a manuscript or something I could send somebody. And um, sure enough, um, over a course of um, after that got that little trigger there, I started putting together uh, all of my articles I had written. I wrote a series out, and I think that's what we talked about originally um, on the topic of King James onlyism, primarily answering their key objections. You know, what exactly are the key arguments, at least in my mind, as I was when I was a King James onlyist. how I argued and how I presented my King James only apologetics as it were. Mm-hmm. And um, it really was quite a, it was, it was fun to write, but I went back and I redid the material and punched it all up and um, made it more readable rather than an electronic, you know, blog article and uh, uh, documented everything, tried to footnote stuff. Well, the other and, interesting part is if you're giving it to grandma, um, you know, she's going to wonder yes. what's a, what's a hip and a thigh. I mean, that is not what you yeah, try not to break. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> what I, yeah, in I know. A fall? <laughs> <laughs> either get, either get a joint pain medication or <laughs> yeah. something else unseemly. But, um, so yeah, it definitely was, uh, uh, something that I wanted to get into the hands of like people who may not necessarily be on the internet per se, or, you know, something that you can give primarily to a, uh, people who have questions about that. I, I'm mm-hmm. just amazed that even seven years later, since we first talked about this, uh, people still have this as a major issue in their life. And when I redid this material, um, I began to kind of think, you know, the theme that I'm kind of kind of hit on is just talking about how in spite of what, you know, King James only is have good intentions. I'll give it to them that they want to have a high view of God's word. I mean, they are obviously committed to scripture, you know, mm-hmm. as, as we would say, but in defending this narrow odd little view that only this 17th century translation of scripture is only the word of God. They do God's word a great harm and great disrespect. And really it's like they, they create this conspiratorial worldview that is built around these apologetics. And, um, in that they basically bring disrepute upon scripture, at least in my mind. Sure. And their arguments really do more damage than they do help. And so I wanted to, that's why the kind of idea of it being Royal deceptions, mm-hmm. you know, exposing the King James conspiracies against God's word. All of these arguments are grounded really in these conspiratorial yeah, you're kinda, you're history. Kind of tr- trolling in the title there. I know. And I even wrote that in the preface. It's like, you know, immediately people are going to be annoyed with my Uh title because that's exactly what I'm getting at. Because when you look at these arguments, it's like, this is based upon like a very conspiratorial view of history that there's heretics that have, you know, snuck in and clandestine changed the word of God and they've changed and tweaked it just a little bit. They've introduced just enough error. So that when you read the modern version, you're going to be a raving heretic, you know, within 10 years because you've made that your primarily really. I mean, but that's not happening. Mm-hmm. You know, heretics are heretics because they're heretics yeah. and they interpret the Bible incorrectly according to their heresy, not because they were, you know, solid Christians. And then they had the wrong Bible that had been tampered with heretics. And then now they are denying the you know, hell exists or, you know, man is 
um, man is born good or Christ isn't God or whatever it might be. I mean, that's not how it works. Well, but when you read the modern versions, you, you might, you might not become uh, a person that denies hell, but you might become a Calvinist. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's what I did whenever I started reading. <laughs> well, I think I became a Calvinist before I even uh, left my King James only. Oh, yeah. so I was using the King James in order to demonstrate my uh, Calvinism, as it were. So. Yeah. Well, um, we did the show seven years ago, and I went back and listened, and we spent quite a bit of time talking about your story getting mm-hmm. into King James only, and then you came back out and like how you came right. back out. And it was quite a story. And I want to leave most of that for, you know, if, if you haven't heard it as a listener, that's episode 73. You can go to echozoe.com slash seven three and hear that whole thing. But maybe we'll just link that in the show notes. Oh, yeah, I will. If I, I could do that. <laughs> yeah. I could link that in. But, you know, you could skip the show notes and go straight to dot, you know, slash 73. Yeah. And, but uh, maybe we'll do like the condensed, like short version, like what drew you in and what drew you out. No, sure. Sure. Well, basically when I got saved, um, I was saved in a Southern Baptist church. And um, in, even though the Southern, it seems like the Southern Baptist denomination is always on the verge of splitting over something. And uh, now it's probably going to be critical race theory. <laughs> mm-hmm. But at the time when I was a really young guy in college, just getting into college, it was on the sufficiency of scripture and particularly inerrancy. And um, I had a dear friend who was a King James onlyist. And he said, well, you know, if you're really going to pursue inerrancy, if you're really committed to the inerrant scripture, well, you're just going to read the King James. And he gave me a book uh, by a pastor in Oklahoma who had uh, written, you know, sort of his own journey about the Bible and him, why he became a King James only. And he uh, was evaluating modern versions. And what really drew me to that was that in the book, he had a chapter in there that was written. Um, really, they were articles that he'd gotten from a New Zealand doctor uh, who was a pastor or an associate pastor somewhere in New Zealand. And um, the guy was answering the so-called copious error kind of problems that you find mm-hmm. in the margins of your book. He was using, or in your Bibles, he was using the King James text to give explanation to these so-called contradictions and copy, what, what, what are usually labeled like in my Ryrie study Bible as copious errors. So he was saying, there's no error here. It's, you know, these two texts can be reconciled if you just look at the King James and how they reconcile it. And I was so struck by that. I was like, wow, that's just really, I'm amazed. I can't believe that he would do this. And, and just, uh, that's, it's amazing how this can uh, work together. And so I started, uh, that just sort of got me into going into getting my King James literature. I even found the phone number for that guy and called him and he gave me books to read and authors this to maybe a pursue. New Zealand guy? No, it was the uh, the the pastor who wrote the oh, book. Okay. He was using the New Zealand guy's stuff. And um, long story short, though, I, as I was going through my King James Onlyism, um, at some point, I think it was in 1993, maybe, still as a young man, 92, maybe, um, I got a hold of Gail Ripplinger's book, New Age Bible Versions. And Gail Ripplinger, I think, probably is what God used to really open my eyes to see, you know, this, this is kind of loopy, I, you know, <laughs> yeah. and she, and cause her thesis is that God's uh, all of the modern versions are based upon new age version, new age <laughs> mysticism and all this kind of stuff. And the, and as a result, if you're a Christian using modern versions, well, you're, you're going to be steeped into new ageism and you're going to be readily um, and willing to readily willing to just introduce the antichrist to the church and embrace him and fall away from the faith kind of thing. And uh, that's sort of her thesis. And so it's this big convoluted book. It's written, I, I don't know, just all kinds of wild accusations and conspiracies in there that she wrote. And um I just, I was like, you know, this, this is crazy. And when I would go back and even cross-reference some of her uh, material, um, 
particularly some of her footnotes she put in there, I found that she was taking a lot of that stuff out of context. She was cherry picking citations, um, cutting and pasting stuff that, you know, it's like, wait a minute, that's, he said something different over here, taking two quotes from two different major portions of this person's book and putting them together as if they're right. And you're making him say something he didn't say. And that really concerned me. And I, uh, thankfully, well, I mean, I guess he thankfully, but I mean, other King James only were like, you know, yeah, she's loopy. We shouldn't listen to her. So I sort of rested upon their criticisms of her work mm-hmm. and carry continued merrily on my way in King James onlyism. But the second thing that really, you know, got me out of it was as I was becoming uh, more and more grounded in my faith and in what scripture teaches, I became calvinistic in my soteriology and uh i just and, and i noticed that the first thing about king james only is, is that they not only hate modern versions with a with a with a in the heat of a thousand suns they also hate calvinism mm-hmm. <laughs> with the x with just the same amount of intensity and so I knew that, you know, this is what scripture is teaching me. I I don't see how you can understand this in any other way. And as I was understanding scriptures, I was just like, this is not, you know, the claim that Calvinism is teaching some kind of false gospel is just absurd. It's not doing It's what the Bible's telling me. <laughs> how can you get around this? You know, unless you're just absolutely committed to some view that you're going to defend to the death uh, against all odds, you know, and it's all evidence. And so those two instances in my life, God used to really bring me out of that and um, to open my eyes to the truth. And the person that I really went to that I loved because of his Calvinism was James White. Mm-hmm. And he had also written a book on King James onlyism uh, against King James onlyism, actually sort of engaging um, Gail Ripplinger's stuff as kind of his main person he's arguing against. And when I read his book the first time as a King is a King James only as I had everything marked up in it and was had all these, you know, scurrilous, you know, citations and footnotes in there. And I, this is crazy. And he's totally wrong. I mean, all these little comments I would put in the text. And um, I went and was reading his book on Calvinism, his Potter's freedom book, Mm -hmm. which really just, it's really just um, that and AW pink sovereignty of God really anchored my understanding of, you know, the doctrines of grace. Mm -hmm. Well, after I had this really profound, um, you know, just a really good learning from James on his topic of Calvinism, I went back and reread his book on King James onlyism. And I just saw it in a totally different light. I'm like, yeah, I mean, this is right. And I began to just sort of see that King James onlyism really has a deficient view of scripture and it's going to cause more harm and problems than it's going to cause good. They're not defending God's word. They're actually bringing a disrepute upon it. Mm-hmm. And um, as a result, I wanted to start writing about it and um, go through my, go through my change of convictions as it were. And at some point, I think I began going to all of these various email discussion groups, you know, where they have various King James only forums. And I was engaging some of their apologists, you know, they're online and uh, interacting with their arguments. Um, I began to encounter individuals who are sort of silent lurkers. Uh-huh. You know, they didn't really participate in the conversations, but they were obviously reading them because everybody could read them. And they saw that I was giving this pushback. And so a lot of these people would dm me offline you know out outside the group or email me or something and say hey you know i really have the same kind of questions and you're doing a good job of answering this um you know have you ever written on this or would you recommend any resources and and so i just uh you know i had just uh, started that's the what, where the blog started yeah that's that uh, well my blog had just started uh-huh and I was using it as an outlet to just kind of, you know, ramble about silly things, you know, whatever, posting funny pictures and stuff. Um, and I just thought, okay, well, I'm going to actually do something serious with my bog. And so I began to compile these lessons or these, um, you know, these seminars or whatever. So I wrote these essays out about, you know, why um, I can't even remember what I wrote in the original. This is evaluating King James only arguments or something was the name of my series. Mm-hmm. And I had like I had several 
articles, maybe 10 or nine or 10 articles. And then I also wrote essays whenever there would be people that would write me and challenge my convictions or I would find some other King James person that bring brought some sort of different argument to the table. I'd try to in, interact with it. And so I had a whole bunch of articles. Um, when the Chris Pinto stuff came out, that little uh, Tears Among the Wheat DVD, um, shortly kind of after we had interviewed or right before that, the first time, um, I wrote a book review or a, you know, a, a movie review of his documentary um just interacting with his argument and all that sort of stuff and um and so yeah and so then i did this stuff sort of rested it was just there on my website and then i you know i had this experience with my uh boss just looking for material to give to a person who had questions and that's where i took all of my notes and put it together in a book hmm. so well i noticed that um you know through the website there isn't a whole lot of uh, interaction or feedback on the website. So people download the episode, they listen, but but very very few will go back later and then leave a comment or anything, right? Right, right. And and that's understandable. I don't, you know, I do the same thing. I listen to podcasts, and I'm usually out and about and in the car or in the backyard mowing the lawn or something, you know. And and by the time you're in front of a computer to go leave that comment you were thinking of, it's it's you forgot, you know. It's right, so, right. It's not that's just kind of yeah. how life is, but. But when we did that show, it was like, <laughs> I, I think there were King James onlyists who must have had like Fred Butler as a, as a Google uh, keyword or something. One of those <laughs> word trackers yeah. or something. Cause all of a sudden I started getting a bunch of it and That's I, Chris guys, some of it's still there, but so, <laughs> yeah. there's a few that might still be there, but I think I was even just spamming a bunch of it. Cause it was, you know, like it, the, the blog had a, a feature it still to this day has a feature where just to control spam mm. i have to approve like if you go on there i got to approve your first comment but once i approve you then you can comment at women it'll just go up right away right 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 well right. most of these people were first timers so i had to approve and i was like nope spam 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 <laughs> so yeah i know it'll probably be the same with this episode too yeah we'll have see. all kinds if, of uh People swarming in, just talking about he's telling you lies about the word of God. You know. Well, wow. if they've got like the Google keywords or whatever, you know, they don't even have to. Just like, I haven't been so active on alerts. online talking about that as much anymore. And so yeah, I would be surprised. They probably all sudden out of nowhere. Just well, I don't know what it was. If it, if it was your name or if it was KJV or what, <laughs> probably, the, what the, yep. the word alert was, but. Yeah, that one kind of drew people off. It's like a bunch of atheists that do that kind of stuff. You say something atheist, and boy, they come swarming to your Twitter account or to wherever you're at, your blog or whatever. So i just like to maybe spend the rest of the hour that we're together just kind of walking through the the different chapters of the book. And and really what it's crafted around is you've got six key arguments that King James Onlyists use. And they're apologetic. You present their view and then you tell why it's not a solid view. Right. Yeah, there are. There's six of them. And um, I have them broken down as the exclusivity argument, the promise argument, the textual argument, the purity argument, the scholarship argument, and then the historical argument. And uh, the second chapter kind of outlines kind of where I'm going in my book and what they're about. But yeah, all of these arguments here, I'm sure there's probably a lot more that people could probably point to. Mm-hmm. I was trying to boil it down to the key ones that I see repeated pretty much all the time and all of the literature, even to this day. I mean, you know, the same stuff is kind of repeated. And, mm-hmm. you know, the idea of... Uh, each one of these arguments is like it's something that's it's it's a means by which a King James onlyist argues because I think in the book in the preface I kind of note how that a lot of my sources are probably dated meaning I think I, you know most of my books I'd gotten were pr- uh, published in the eighties and the early nineties maybe I had some stuff that was in the later nineties that I'd maybe bought but um, those books um, and authors. Uh, even though some of them might even be deceased, like Peter Ruckman and uh, 
and I think it might be um, D.A. Waite might be deceased as well. I don't know if he's still alive. He was he was older, elderly whenever I was writing about this, you know, 15 years ago. So I don't know where he is. But, um, you know, a lot of those people are still being utilized by the modern day you know, YouTuber King James only people. Mm-hmm. And it's, I see, I hear the same stuff argued um, for in uh, these, in these things and uh, these various arguments. So I, that's what I wanted to kind of hit on. So this is just sort of boils down to these are skeletal arguments mm-hmm. and it might expand upon that. And, um, you know, my purpose is to sort of uh, outline those things. And uh, this is kind of how, this is how you'll be able to kind of argue. Here are some responses to that. So forth. And, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Well, um, maybe rather than just going bullet point one, one, two, three, whatever. Um, let's just start with what, what do you, what is maybe your favorite to interact with? Um, I would probably say it would be the textual argument. That's my longest chapter in the book, just because there's a lot of material that needs to be mm-hmm. covered, which is, you know, how we got our old Testament and how we got our New Testament, and how King James only's only us argue for the veracity of the Hebrew text and the veracity of the New Testament text, and why they choose these particular um, manuscripts in the Old Testament and these manuscripts in the New Testament. I go through all that, but then I kind of have a uh, like an excursus chapter. Where I talk about the heretics, you know, there is yeah. the main claim of all the King James on King James only is, is that heretical people sometime in the past, usually during the age of the church fathers, got a hold of the original manuscripts and they got them and they inserted heretical doctrines into them, primarily by either removing um, words and that sort of thing, like the full deity, the full title of Christ. So our Lord Jesus Christ. So they'll remove, they'll remove Lord and Christ. And so that in their version of Matthew, it's just in Jesus, you know, instead of then the Lord Jesus Christ, or they'll remove, you know, the word blood from a sentence in the book of Ephesians or Colossians or whatever. Mm-hmm. And because of that, it's claimed that these men were sinisterly introducing in very secret, you know, just like giving just a little bit of arsenic in your food. You know, it's usually what they'll say. Would you drink a glass of water with just a drop of arsenic in it? You know, <laughs> it's even though it's 99% purely water and it's like, would you drink that? Well, of course you wouldn't drink that. Okay, well, you know, um, so they'll claim that they had these heretical men that did these dastardly deeds to the text. But when you go back and you actually evaluate these claims, they're not legit at all. Um, You didn't have heretical. You had heretical men teach heretical things, as we kind of noted earlier. Yeah, they didn't. They didn't take the text and doctor the text. I think there's a few instances of that. And the Christian church immediately recognized that these guys were doctoring the text. Mm-hmm. Um, and well, they marked them out. To, to like these days, we've got the new world translation where the oh, Jehovah's exactly. Witnesses come in. And- we all know that that's a corrupted Bible. Mm-hmm. I mean, because we, they, they even talked about why they made the changes. Well, we know that that's, you know, that's a, I would never tell anyone to read a new world translation, but they would carry, but King James only as will carry on. Like you've got that kind of level of error in the ESV that you have in a new world translation. And that's just not the case. That's just, that's not true. Um, they also appeal to as the texts of the new Testament in particular um, were gathered and um, you know, scholars, particularly in the 1700s and, and coming forward into our you know 21st century um, the Ottoman empire fell. So Christians and, and um, apologists and scholars had the ability to get into some of these old monasteries that were once closed because the Mormon or the Mormons, the Muslims, uh, controlled everything there in the Middle East. And so they were able to go back there and find these, scour these libraries and some of these old uh, cathedrals and find these texts that they were one time uh, in circulation, but got taken out of circulation because the Muslims wouldn't let them be circulated. 
And they began to see, it's like, wait a minute, these are older than these one text that we've always been using and the ones that the King James primarily use a translate for from. They're not different in that they're presenting a totally different picture of Jesus, but there's slight variations in the way things were spelled, um, mm-hmm. certain word order or something, stuff like that. And they began to say, hey, maybe we need to use these to kind of build our apparatus from which we translate a new English translation. And so they they utilize these texts because in their mind, and rightly so, they're older. They go back closer to when the time the apostles wrote their original documents. And when they were circulating in the um in the Christian world there in North Africa. And so these guys, um, because some of them who began to take an interest in textual criticism were uh, I mean, they were not necessarily uh, independent fundamental Baptist Christians, <laughs> as they, so to speak. Um, they, they basically are considered suspicious because, well, you know, he's an Anglican or he was Roman Catholic or whatever. It's like, well, okay, that might be true, but is his work legit? I mean, mm-hmm. when you can you go back and evaluate his work and see if he's tampered with the text like you're claiming? And you can't. Right. And so they'll talk about how terrible liberal Nestle's and uh, Nestle Alon or uh, the carrot Alon was and or whatever. Well, this is and why I've, I've taken an interest in over the years in teaching uh, logic and basic fallacies and stuff because that's really, I mean, this is, these are basic fallacies. Mm-hmm. You say exactly. oh, somebody's a Roman Catholic, so therefore you, know, you throw out all their work. Well, that, I know. That's, well, a, yeah, that's a. I, and I agree with you. And I, and, and, are Roman Catholics got maybe some sort of under, you know, I guess you could say some, some secondary motivation sometimes. Well, yeah, they could. Sure. But like what you're saying is just, they're dealing with a, their with doctrine, a I would disagree with their doctrine, but yet if, if a Roman Catholic were, were, were a scribe copying the biblical text, I, I would generally defer that they're probably going to try to be faithful to the text. Right. And that's what you see throughout the, you know, the course of church history, the men who translated or actually copied and trans um, transposed and transferred and, mm-hmm. you know, brought the manuscripts through time by their copying efforts and preserving them that way. Um, they did exactly that. They were very careful about what they did. They weren't intentionally destroying texts or whatever. And when there was a problem in the text, they would note it in their margins. And that's what I think Kurt Alon sort of noted is that he said all of these manuscripts, they don't seem, they don't lose words. They seem to add to them because I think there was a desire of the original copyists to do the best they can to preserve the text. And if they Mm -hmm. were unclear about something, well, they would put that in the margin. You see that even in the Old Testament documents where you have the uh, certain readings that are in the margins of the of the text in the notes. And they'll say, hey, you should be reading this out loud to the to the synagogue. But we also have these other readings over here which are in the margin and this could be part of the text too. You know, it's uncertain kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And well, there you, I think I had a seminary professor kind of liken it to the fact that we got like 115% of what <laughs> we Bible. consider of the Bible, yeah. because the Bible is one of the most well-preserved, well-documented pieces of ancient literature that's in the world. There's nothing mm-hmm. that comes close to being able to find it. I mean, you see that in, uh, I think uh, Josh McDowell talks about that in his book, Evidence of Demands of Verge, yep. which is very well done in documenting that reality. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, uh, the well, Bible it speaks is- really well of the, uh, of the process of textual uh, transmission that right. we have that much that, that if there was any question that they would write, you know, kind of, well, if there's two options, they would write them both down. One might be in the margins and stuff. And, and, yeah, and, and I, with a hope that maybe someday somebody, I can't figure it out, but maybe somebody, someday somebody will. And and you brought up uh, James White. And one thing I've been interested in over the last several years and in, in hearing from him is getting into in some of his textual criticism stuff where 
there are now newer methods of analyzing texts right know, using computers and tracing genealogies of texts and seeing you know how they can use database structures to to link you know that this text comes from this place and this text comes from that place and I mean, it's really amazing some of the things that they can do right to, he's actually writing a dissertation or something on that topic where he's utilizing those techniques to kind of look at i think the gospel of john mm -hmm. and some of these second century manuscripts and so far what he's finding well, is that what we have in our modern versions <laughs> is what is back then as well it's not 18 centuries and now we've got a wow. computer to analyze it and 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 it's been there all along just waiting for somebody that had that tool Right. Now, I'm sure liberals will use that to twist it around and say, oh, yeah, you can see there's tampering here. And you have people like Bart Ehrman who will claim that uh, they, 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 oh, that's interesting. And I kind of note this in my chapter on the heretics is that heretical people tend to always claim that the Bible has been corrupted. They'll say, well, you know, the Bible has been corrupted. Everybody says that. I mean, in the first century, when coming out of the the church, you had Jewish, you know, philosophers that were saying, "Well, you know, the well, the Bible's been corrupted. You can't really believe that, you know, the prophecies speak about Jesus being this Messiah. You know, the well, it's been corrupted." And they'll make these claims about how it's been lost and everything. Muslims claim that against the mm. New Testament. Well, it's been corrupted, and it doesn't really teach about Muhammad because the Christians have corrupted it, or the Jews have corrupted it. Um, uh, the guy who wrote the was a Dan Brown wrote the Da Vinci Code. His whole concept with that book was, well, the Bible's been corrupted to leave out the fact that Jesus was a normal guy married to Mary Magdalene, and the whole Crusades was a means by which they would go in and try to find all these texts that talk about him being divine so they can control them and destroy them or something. And that's just baloney. Mm -hmm. um, Madame Plavansky in the 1800s, she claimed that the Bible had been corrupted and she even was mocking Westcott and Hort when they were doing their work, claiming that, oh, they're, they're doing that in vain because we can't really know what the Bible says. It's been corrupted over time. But we don't see that. What good textual criticism reveals is that it hasn't been corrupted, that heretics make that claim because they want to promote some kind of pet doctrine that's obviously not found in scripture mm -hmm. or they have to twist the interpretation to squeeze it out of scripture and they'll say well you know, you know it's really it's been corrupted so we can't you know it was there at one time but it's not there now but you got to believe me that it's there that's what the mormons claim that they believe that you know joseph smith was restoring the true faith mm -hmm. well the true faith doesn't teach that you know men can become gods and that the earth's eternal and you know there's this eternal pantheon of gods and all this sort of thing i mean it's not there well it's been corrupted you know the bible mm -hmm. has not been corrupted well okay <laughs> and so this idea that heretics corrupt it in the sense that they're messing up the text and we can't identify it that's just not happening you know yeah and when it does it's always in the other way it's always pulling right. us away from 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 the from what we've got as a scripture you know like we right, talked about exactly. the new world translation and the mormons and adding adding their extra texts and whatnot right yeah. And, and so faithful textual critics are going to take that material and weigh it and read through it and evaluate it. And they can put together, uh, you know, OK, we can maybe trace this back and we can kind of see the development of this text and why it would say this. And so originally it probably said this, which we have a, a, a solid translation into English in the NASB mm -hmm. that reflects what that says. I mean, that's, you know, yeah. God has never been, has never left his people without a witness yeah. in his word. And it just has never happened. I'm not by any stretch an expert on textual transmission and whatnot. But um, I, when I, when I do study in, in the little, what little depth I study. I'm I'm always amazed at how well preserved things are. Oh, it is. It is. I would even recommend to your readers an excellent book by Michael Kruger um called Canon Revisited, where he just talks about the canon of scripture, particularly the New Testament. Mm -hmm. And it just within the first century, 
Christians were recognizing scripture for what it was as being divinely inspired. You know, there wasn't this somehow coming in three or 400 years later and sort of voting on this right. book belongs in the new Testament. And this one doesn't, mm-hmm. no, they recognized immediately because it was divinely God's divine hand was on that. And he was right. directing his people to recognize those things. And he talks about that in his book. It's very well done. It's a good compliment to this whole idea of. Well, and know, if PG. you, if people want to experience that, um, it's not hard. You can find some of these, uh, non-canonical writings that came around in those times, like the Gnost- oh, yeah. Gnostic writings and stuff. You can, <laughs> yeah. you can find some of that stuff and read it. And it gets, it's pretty stark. You can tell this is not reading like the four gospels. Right. This is not reading is. like Paul's epistles. It's weird. It has these, uh, you know, and it's not like revelation where we read the book of revelation. What's well, clear. You're reading some prophetic events that are being written mm-hmm. about. And and it's then it connect to scripture, whereas you read you know the the extension of Moses or whatever you're like, okay this is odd. It's just mm-hmm. you know what is this? What is this stuff? What's this about? And uh, yeah, you're right. It's just there's you can read that stuff. It does not have the hand of the spirit on it that it could it gels with your spirit and that you you have sort of a, a, an excitement to read that because it's the word of God. You know, it just is not happening. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I keep coming back to this ex- exclusivity thing. And, um, you know, that was like the first argument that you addressed in the book, the exclusivity argument. But um, it's always, it's kind of astonishing to me, but let's talk about that one a little bit. Well, that one, basically when you talk to a, King James onlyist, that individual is going to automatically assume that when you say the word of God, it equals the King James. So the King James alone is the word of God alone. So if you do anything to like correct the King James or to say, hey, it could be better rendered in this way, in this passage or whatever, or it could be made clearer in this fashion, well, in the King James only is mind, you're then tampering with the word of God. Mm-hmm. You're taking away from, or you're at, you're blaspheming the word of God. Mm-hmm. And usually they'll argue something along the lines, you know, you, you give like, cause oh, you, the, for one of the first things I was going to say to you, if you get into a debate with these people uh, online or whatever, is like, well, can you show me a copy of God's word? And so if you get your NASB or your, legacy standard Bible that's coming out <laughs> and you show them, Hey, here, right here. Oh, really? You think that is? And so they'll document dump you all of these supposed problem er- problem passages that supposedly take away from the deity of Christ or say something different than what the King James reads. And they'll claim that, you know, these two things can't be the word of God, you know, and, but that's not, it's it's absolutely illogical like we were mentioning before because it's basing that upon the the assumption the the it's a circular argument really that you know you're automatically believing that the king james is the word of god so anything that departs from that is not going to be the word of god it is suspect that is corrupted or whatever Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I usually try to pin them back by just asking them, okay, well, can you define for me? What do you mean by, you know, the word of God, you know, define some of these terms, infallible, inerrant, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that you might have a text that reads a slightly different in, in its translation than what the King James says, it's saying the same thing. It's just, you know, in English, it's, it's just communicating it slightly different in a slightly different way, probably actually more clear because mm-hmm. it's not in this old Elizabethan English, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? And um, so I always try to, you know, zero in on those issues with them and, okay, show me why you believe that this is the word of God. And if you take anything from it or if you change it or question it, you know, why, you know, are you messing up the word of God? I mean, are you you know, blaspheming, like you were saying, you know, because you're taking away scripture. Um, well, it's, I used, it, it, we talked about it last time. I, we, you know, seven years ago too, that, that it's, it's not just that they say that King James is the, 
is the only English translation. Some of them will even say it's the only translation. If you speak another language and you want to read oh, God's yeah. word, you got to learn English. You got to learn, a, you know, King James English and then read the oh, King yeah. James Bible. I had a, if you're from I, Portugal and you want to read the Bible, you got to learn English and okay, read so, the King James Bible. Okay, so I have a, a friend of mine, Korean lady, and she was asking me about King James onlyism. And I said, whoa, well, I just wrote a book. You know, I was telling her about my book and everything. Oh, really? I'd like to read that, you know. And her brother is a King James onlyist. And how he kind of came from a Methodist, this lefty Methodist church. It didn't really have a high view of scripture and came to this IFB church. And they do have a high view of scripture and the preaching and all that sort of thing. And I'm like, well, that's, you know, that's noble that he wants to do that and everything. But, you know, why would he you don't have to be a King James only as he goes, well, that's all he's known and everything. And I was like, well, why don't you, um, you know, I'll be happy to send him a copy of my book. And she goes, Oh, he probably wouldn't be able to read it. And I'm like, why is that? Well, because he just speaks Korean. And I'm like, what? (laughs) So he's like reading translations into Korean of the King James Bible. Now I was like, okay, are you then saying that you're messing with the word of God if you're translating it from the King James into Korean or, you know, any of that. I just, do you understand the disconnect and the, you know, and the, I, I don't know. It's just, it's just backwards <laughs> yeah. thinking, you know what I mean? <laughs> I don't want to describe it. That That's the one that's always just been, I just kind of have to laugh, I guess. It is. It's like, so you're telling me God cannot communicate any other language. Well, I mean, at he, least the Muslims will say, though, that the Quran was written in Arabic. And so if you want to read the Quran, you got to do it in Arabic. Well, at least it's the right. original language that it was written in. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> it's, it's not English, which wasn't the original. Right. But they'll, they'll elevate those um, translators up to near apostolic, mm-hmm. you know, levels. Hey, these guys were totally, um, you know, inspired by God and they recaptured some of the old language that was that had disappeared. And their translation basically, you know, re-inspires the Old Testament and the New Testament. I mean, that's how some of these folks think. Now, that's not all of them. I get that there's, you know, this there's these uh, this this one corner of King James onlyism that's primarily, uh, you know, swirls around in reform circles where they only read the King James because it's it's perceived that it's like the closest, you know, Bible that's to the Reformation era and all that sort of thing. But so that yeah, well. Then why not the Geneva Bible then? Yeah, I know. That's what I've always kind of wondered. Because most Puritans, well, pretty much all the Puritans, after King James had that Bible commissioned and it was published, they didn't read the King James. They still did not like high English, you know, especially the folks in Scotland and mm-hmm. in the dissenters. I mean, they were still reading the Geneva Bible. Well, and that's what they a, brought I mean, over the, to the U.S. That's the thing is there's a whole, like, political intrigue behind why King James commissioned the authorized version. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't because he wanted this one. It wasn't just because he wanted a good English version. Right. He was trying to reconcile, you know, the church of England, high churchmen with the Puritan Anglicans who wanted to purify the church and get all the vestiges of Roman Catholics, a Roman Catholic thinking and Catholicism out of the um, church of England. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, so in order to make some sort of compromise, it was, Hey, let's why well, maybe we can put together a Bible that we can all agree upon. And, um, you know, maybe start seeking some unity. And so they got the Bishop's Bible, which is probably the main base text, along with, you know, uh, Tyndale's material. I mean, I love and appreciate the King James. I always try to tell this to folks mm-hmm. when I've been interviewed about my my book is that I love the King James Bible. I think it's one of the greatest English if not the greatest works of English literature that's available. I mean, it's a beautiful translation of what's written. We have tons and tons of English expressions 
mm-hmm. um, that we have taken from the King James words, uh, important theological concepts like atonement is created by William Tyndale, who was using the, he was the, really the guy who gave us a lot of this English, a lot of these English words. So, you know, I love the Bible. It's just the issue is why are you making people slavishly devoted to it? And when they can't really understand it, when there's other reasonably well-written and solid, you know, translations that they could read just because you don't like, you know, that it's a critical text as opposed to the TR or whatever mm-hmm. you know, it's translated from, it's saying the same thing. Mm-hmm. There's no well, There are good arguments. I think the best argument I've heard for the King James is um, from people in the like they really appreciate scripture memorization and we'll say they like the King James because it's timeless and it's been around and, you know, a lot of other versions have come and gone and the NIV will, will be gone someday. Then NASB will be gone someday. The ESV will be gone someday, but the King James has been around for 500 years, uh, 400 years, sorry. And uh, it's the most likely to be there in another hundred years. And so when they're doing their scripture memorization and, you know, the, the times we seem to be heading in, there might be a time in the not too distant future where it's really hard to get your hands on a Bible. And right, so right. you're going to want, you're going to want as much in your just like locked in memory as you can get. Right. And, uh, and that is a strength of the King James. It's just, it's yeah, longevity. And, I, and I don't deny that. I would even encourage believers you know, why don't you pick up a King James and use it for a year through your devotional time? So if you read through the book of Proverbs or if you read through the New Testament in the King James, just to kind of get a feel for it and how mm-hmm. it is. I mean, I would certainly encourage people to do that. And um, I mean, because it's a it's a great translation. If you can read it and understand it. <laughs> yeah, that's know? the key. If you can understand it. <laughs> And uh, just don't go this direction where you're saying this is the only Bible that we can read. It's a Christian. Mm-hmm. It's the only Christian Bible. All of the Bibles are suspect and, uh, you know, need to be rejected. It's just no, mm-hmm. no. Well, I think we maybe got time to tackle one more um, and I'll throw it out again to you. Uh, promise argument, purity argument, scholarship or historical. Well, you know something I would say. Um, out of my book, and this is not a chapter, um, in the back, I have an appendix. And the reason why I bring this up is because, um, the topic of my appendix deals with Chris Pinto's tears among the wheat, um, DVD. And uh, a lot of Christians that I have met, a lot of people have met, have really had their faith upturned by this DVD because uh, the DVD, the documentary, suggests that the oldest um, complete New Testament that we have, which is the Sinaiticus, it's in, it's on publication or it's on display in the uh, museum in England, um, the London. A historical museum. I can't remember what that's called. Royal museum. Mm-hmm. Um, that it's really a modern day forgery. In other words, it was maybe written or created in the early 1800s uh, rather than the fourth century AD. And so back during the time of Augustine. Right. Mm-hmm. And the claim is, is that uh, because modern versions um, a lot of the textual witnesses that they have for have being the oldest and best kind of is verified by that manuscript uh, by the Sinaiticus. And so Chris Pinto's argument is that, uh, and he goes back to this time when this guy named Siamedes had written a series of letters against uh, Tischendorf um, Constantine Tischendorf was the founder of the, he discovered the Sinaiticus uh, in this monastery in uh, St. Catharines in Egypt, Sinai, Sinai Peninsula. Well, had it removed, 
there's questions about if he did it honestly or if he stole it or whatever, but whatever the fact, he still got it to England, um, was able to read through it and verify that it's old and had it published or, you know, started publishing some of this for the scholarly world to look at. And this other character comes along named Constantine Samides. Uh, he was a Greek fellow who claimed that Tischendorf was a hack and was identifying a piece of work that he created when he was a young man back in like 1840 or something like that. So he was a young man, like in his teens, and he was learning how to do calligraphy and how to do textual uh, work and that sort of thing. And so he claimed I was the one who developed and created this manuscript. And it come to find out, though, that Siamides was a complete fraud. He was a con man. He was a guy who basically um, would get um, manuscripts. Uh, he was a document forger, so that part of him was true. And he would create manuscripts really to sell to these rich millionaire guys who were trying to buy ancient documents from the Middle East because, again, the collapse of the Ottoman Empire opened up a lot of this area. So the the sale and dealing in antiquities and in um, various um, ancient manuscripts was everywhere and people were buying them and selling them. Um, Joseph Smith, for instance, got, you know, he claimed to have found the book of Abraham when this guy was coming through Ohio trying to sell <laughs> this, these mummies or whatever, his mummies <laughs> that he had stolen or picked up from somewhere in England or whatever. Well, in the same way, this is what happened to, um, uh, Siamedes is that he was forging a lot of these documents and he um, was angry at Tischendorf because a few years before Tischendorf began publishing the Sionaticus, Tischendorf was instrumental in exposing some of his con artist tricks and trying to sell documents. So now he goes and starts writing letters to the um, to the Guardian newspaper claiming, oh, no, no, he's totally out, out to lunch. I wrote these, and uh, he had even tried to produce some letters from some bishops, some Greek Orthodox guys, claiming that, yeah, he wrote these, he created these manuscripts, and he created the Sinaiticus, and, um, and even people claim that those letters might have been forged by Siamese as well, but Needless to say, um, Tischendorf's friends came to his rescue, basically verified that this guy was crazy, didn't know what he's talking about, and that this text was legitimate. It was definitely legitimate. Um, that's been confirmed by many scholars who've looked at this text. It's it's an, it's an old document, mm -hmm. um, and Siamedes disappeared. And the reason why I kind of you know did a did a review of that is again just because a lot of Christians have been getting. Uh, looking at that documentary and the material found in that documentary has been um, rewritten into some books. Um, I think uh, so David Daniels, the guy who's sort of the um, keeper of all of Jack Chick's materials now that Jack Chick has died. Um, he's written a book talking about is the world's oldest Bible of, you know, a hoax or a, or a fraud or something like that. And um People read this and it upsets their faith mm -hmm. and because they're going to look at that and say, oh, well, yeah, maybe it was true that, you know, this, this, this Bible is a hoax. So the, my modern version is not legit. It's based upon fraudulent, you know, a fraudulent text. It doesn't really represent the truth or whatever. And, and so I just felt it necessary to include that because that review was done. It's, it's obviously a kind of a strange thing to con conclude a documentary review as an appendices in a, as an appendix and an appendices. But mm -hmm. I just felt it was important because I, I encounter people like that a lot who are troubled by this film and by this material, you know, thinking that their Bible's now been corrupted because it's this guy is claimed to have written the oldest, you know, text of the new testament it's no not it's not really that old or whatever um i hopefully people would get that you know and read through that appendix and most time appendices don't get read through but yeah i um, found that when i was reading through that um you had uh i think you had you had multiple appendices did you not 
I had three of them. Yeah. The other I, one I, had to deal with it was a review of my uh, Walmart um, printed um, oh. facsimile of the 1611 Bible. Yeah. Yeah. You talked and, about that last time and uh, seven years ago. Yeah. We four years, <laughs> three years past the, the anniversary. Yes. But, that I picked uh, up in Walmart, five yeah, bucks. I, I, but but as far as the appendices go, I you know I'm I'm one that usually skips over the preface and the you know foreword. Oh, and, really? And the, and I skip over the appendices and stuff. But I did read those, and they were interesting. Yeah, and, and then I'm, once I'm I read really the, the first one, I realized I better read them all. <laughs> yeah, the other one deals with. Um, there is a claim that um, Westcott and Hort were involved in some kind of new age mysticism stuff. Mm -hmm. And one of the, one of the assertions really comes from the fever swamps of Gail Ripplinger. Yeah. I was just going to say that sounds like a Ripplinger. Yeah. That she claims that they were part of this group called the ghostly guild when they were in college together or when they were in seminary or something. And they were basically um, trying to um, evaluate whether or not seances were the real deal. Okay. And and so the Ghostly Guild really was probably a debunking club because they were probably going out as young people trying to find out whether or not these seance things, because at that time, seances was like the huge, gigantic mega thing that everybody was doing. I mm -hmm. mean, everybody was trying to do seances. And um, and so I'm thinking what their purpose in that club, which I didn't last but for a couple of years or so. And it was disbanded, but their purpose was to maybe try to evaluate whether or not this was real or it was fake or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and then later Westcott even published a, um, a, a paper, a news or a letter that got published where he basically said, yeah, seances are of the devil and they're not, they're, there's no, no good. You really need to stay away from them. Um, the second appendices deals with something that, um, Hort wrote um, to his wife, I believe, in a letter where he said, yeah, we tried to turn tables, you know, but the spirits wouldn't stir, which sounds to imply that he was involved in some kind of seance. Well, of course, independent fundamental Baptists are like, oh, my gosh, you right there. He's he's involving himself into necromancy and Satanism right there. It's like, well, no, I think probably what he was doing is they were probably messing around because they didn't see that as a you know a satanic thing is more of a parlor trick kind of deal and he's basically telling his wife yeah we try to do this thing but it's obviously a fake because nothing <laughs> happened you know no no tables were le uh, levitated or there were no voices talking to us or whatever um i kind of liken it to like um oh the people who go to ghost hunters and try to find whether or not ghosts are real or yeah. ufo people and you know, most of the time that stuff is is a fraud, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's a hoax or whatever. Well, you know, that's going to be getting big again. If, you know, starting to get big again, the UFO stuff, because now there's government paperwork that's coming know, out. There stuff. is There's like, apparently one of the, th the things that I, I think even Congress was involved before Trump left office was yes. a bill saying that a lot of this uh, UFO information needed to be declassified. And I think well, the deadline the is in is June. Yeah, the stuff with that that's really disturbing. We we got like, and we're getting on this wild rabbit here. But yeah. this will be good for this will be good stuff. Good, good closing material. A good closing material is that there are um, naval um, air pilots, you know, fighter pilots, are doing training exercises that have been encountering flying ships off the coast of the United States, both the S the West Coast and the East Coast, and they've been taking video of these things. And now, could they be a you know a bad actor, a bad nation actor like China, mm -hmm. testing drones or whatever? They could. They're trying to investigate that, but they can't find any reasonable explanation for these things. That and that's the key around. is that they're not saying that we've got alien technology that's yes. coming into Earth's atmosphere. <laughs> they're saying that there are, there are phenomenon that are being observed that can't be explained. It can't be explained. And that's, is and it that's demonic? It could very well, well be demonic. You know, yeah. is it real? Is it Russia and China, North Korea? I, I think guess that's could... what some of these government agents are afraid of is that maybe, right, right. maybe another country has technology that is more advanced than, than we 
than we, we might have thought. before. Exactly. But, <laughs> anyway. uh, but yeah, I mean, the way, you know, things are so crazy right now. I, it wouldn't, wouldn't surprise me if, if uh, they're not prepping us to be opened to alien life. And, you know, Seances, my worldview says that if that, if that comes about, it's probably demonic, not alien. Now, but- uh, well, yeah, because people ask me, hey, do you believe in aliens? I'm like, yes, I do. They're multidimensional beings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they live in, in the spiritual realm. Yeah. <laughs> That's what scripture tells me, you know. Yeah. And I believe they're real. I'm more of a Satanist than Satanists are <laughs> because I actually believe Satan is real. You know yeah. what I mean? He's mm-hmm. not some some pagan goddess or something like that, you know. <laughs> Yeah. Well, Fred, I am a little over an hour and um it just sounds like a good place to cut off and uh I want to thank you again for coming back for uh, a second it is always episode a pleasure on being here, man. Yeah. Always a pleasure. So, um where can people find this book? Okay, so on that problematic website called Amazon that's censoring everybody. Yeah. <laughs> The one if you that's go to digitally Amazon, burning books. <laughs> digitally books burning books. Dig- they, they digitally burn your book. I don't know. I've got I, not yet. I've got a book I could write on homosexual apologetics and how they twist the Bible and uh, do something that yeah, answers that. But I burn for sure. That'll be that wouldn't probably get published. But <laughs> this one is if you go yeah. to Amazon, go to um, uh, search Royal Deceptions in my name, you'll find it. It is in a lovely print edition. Uh, with a fun cover on it, and I have a Kindle version. If you're inclined to get the Kindle version, mm-hmm. that's what I read. The Kindle version. So, yeah. Yep. Cool. Well, thank you, and uh, I hope I'll see you again in December with Andrew. Yeah, I hope we do too. I, it might, I it'll be inter- it's going to be interesting. What's going to happen over the next seven months? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we'll see. We'll see we'll if see we're still happens. legally allowed to talk to each other about uh, no. the ways of the Lord and the, and the scriptures. Yep. By December, but. Uh, well, All thanks, right, brother. I'll talk at you later. Echo Zoe Radio is an outreach of Echo Zoe Ministries. If you are blessed by the show, please consider offering your support. There are many things you can do to help, including prayer, sharing the show with others, and your financial support. Echo Zoe Ministries is a registered nonprofit organization with 501c3 tax-exempt status, and your donations are tax-deductible. For more information about how you can support Echo Zoe Ministries, please visit echozoe.com slash support. Well, that wraps up episode 156. Thanks for listening to Echo Zoe Radio. For show notes, visit echozoe.com slash 156. I'm still not very active on social media, old sites or new, so be sure to check out the website for updates. And also, as I mentioned at the top of the show, send me a note at echozoe.com slash contact and Let me know any um, smaller, newer sites that you're involved in, if you like them, and I'll be happy to check them out. And since the first ever episode of the show was May of 2008, and it's a monthly show, the show's year ends with the April episode. So this episode rounds out 13 years of Echo Zoe Radio episodes. And as I like to do at the end of another year of podcasting, I'd like to thank the past year's guests. So over the course of year 13, I had great discussions with Chris Honholtz, Kofi Edubohan, Gabe Hughes, Eric Dalma, Alan Kirshner, Justin Peters, Christopher Drew, Andrew Rappaport, Fred Butler, twice, Michael Spiegel, Jim Renard, and Steve Gretsch. So I want to thank all of those gentlemen for joining me for another 12 enjoyable episodes. And with that, Lord willing, we will be back next month with the May episode to begin year 14 of Echo Zoe Radio. 